What if I were to tell you that God sings? Well, if I did, you'd turn to the Old Testament minor prophet Zephaniah. So go ahead and do that. Zephaniah wrote somewhere around 625 B.C. in that era. He was the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. He prophesied during the days of Judah's last godly ruler, King Josiah. Nahum and Jeremiah were also prophesying. His ministry may have prepared the hearts of the people for the great revival of 621 B.C., which occurred when the law of Moses was rediscovered and read during the repair of the temple. The things that Zephaniah condemned in his messages in this book, they are precisely the things abolished by Josiah. Most of the prophecy is a pronunciation of God's coming judgment. He had in mind two judgments, one of them near and another far. The near judgment was the coming of Babylon against Judah. In three waves, the Babylonians came in successive years, eventually destroying Jerusalem and the temple. If you've been with us at all on Wednesday nights, we've seen Ezekiel's prophesying of that as well. The far judgment is called in this book the Day of the Lord. It is the yet future seven-year great tribulation. The bulk of the three-chapter book from chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8 of chapter 3 is about those two very bad days. The dire nature of the coming day of the Lord is made clear early in the book. I'll just read you a few verses. We're going to be down in, uh, eventually in chapter 3 if you found the book by now. I didn't mean that in any pejorative way. I just I hear pages rustling. I'm going to invent an app that rustles pages as you, uh, as you, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that's the second app I've invented today. But anyway, <laughs> Zephaniah 1.15 says that day is a day of wrath. It's a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities. And against the high towers, I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. From chapter 3, verse 9 to the end of the book, Zephaniah has a radical shift and he begins to describe a coming glad day. It looks beyond the return of the Jews in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to the return of Jesus Christ after the day of the Lord to establish his thousand year kingdom on the earth. The atmosphere of that glorious day is expressed in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. Let's read them. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. 
And so the Jews will be singing and shouting. It's the inevitable, appropriate response to what the Lord will have accomplished, namely six things. Number one, the Lord has taken away your judgments. The long time of discipline, the times of the Gentiles, which were just about to begin with the invasion of Babylon, would be over. Israel would be restored to their relationship with God, or I should say to the privileges of their relationship with God. Number two, he has cast out your enemy. In the context of the millennium, this refers to the Antichrist and his false prophet, both of whom are going to be cast into the lake of fire at the return of Jesus Christ, and to Satan who is bound and cast into the bottomless pit. The third thing, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The glory of the Lord would depart from the temple at the time of the Babylonian invasion and it would not return in any subsequent temple after that. And by the glory of the Lord, I mean the actual presence of the Lord that dwelt there in the Holy of Holies. Ezekiel describes it moving out and leaving. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ark of the Covenant was not in any of the few, uh, temples after that. It wasn't in Zerubbabel's temple. It wasn't in Herod's temple. No one knows where it is. I think it's destroyed and we'll not see it again, but neither here nor there. Now God in the end is going to be in their midst. He will be among them. Number four, you shall see disaster no more. Not only will they be secure, this undoubtedly refers to the amazing changes God will bring to the earth during the kingdom. There will be no more natural disasters like those that we're too familiar with. Number five, do not fear Zion. It will be a time of total peace and safety. And number six, let not your hands be weak. They would be serving the Lord in strength and with purpose. Now, while this is all most definitely spoken to the Jews of the millennium and to the future people of the earth, all these things are true for us spiritually right now. If you are a Christian, number one, the Lord has taken away your judgments. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus bore your sins at the cross. You've been justified, which uh, in layman's terms, which are the only terms I can understand, means just as if I'd never sinned. And so because of what Jesus did, becoming man, God-man, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, bearing the penalty and the punishment for our sin, our substitute and our sacrifice, God can look upon us and He can say, I can treat you just as if you'd never sinned because of what my Son has done on your behalf. And so that's the first thing that we see. Number two, the Lord has cast out your enemy, He said to the Jews, and all of our enemies have been cast out. At the cross, the Bible says that Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan. The last enemy, death. We need not fear death. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that in our, in our flesh, in our natural state, we, we welcome death as it were, or, or that there are, you know, may not be moments of trepidation. But uh, stepping back, you think, well, what, what's, there, what's the worst that could happen to me? The worst thing that could happen to me is I could die, I guess, and that's the best thing that could happen to me because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, immediately present with the Lord. 
And so I have no real fear of any enemies. Uh, the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he's been defeated at the cross. All he can do is roar unless I cooperate with him. And sin, Romans chapter 6, 7 and 8, gives me a clear picture on how I can deal with sin. In fact, it tells me that because Jesus was crucified, I'm crucified. Because he rose from the dead, I rose from the dead. And so I can always say no to sin and yes to God. Number three, he promised to be in your midst, to never leave you or forsake you. This is true of our gatherings, but it also reminds us that our very bodies are the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. Disasters continue, but you know now that all things work together for the good for those who love the Lord. Trials are to make you better, not bitter. Beyond that, you have the promise that the Lord is in heaven preparing your home, that where he is, you will be also. Number five, his perfect love for us can cast out all fear as we walk by faith. And six, our hands need not be weak. We are empowered and commissioned to go sharing him and serving him. Now, if the Jews sang and shouted, how much more should we be people who sing, sing, sing and shout, shout, shout to the Lord, as it were, because of all the great and wonderful things he's done. Now, what's most interesting to me about this passage, we are not the only ones singing. Verse 17, the Lord, your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I can't really comment on God singing over his people. It's kind of a mind boggler to me. I'm, I'm only sure that it's not rap. No, I'm just kidding. It may be. Uh, but uh, uh, it just, I mean, I tried to, I tried to get into these, you know, these, this is like a Tozer thing or a, maybe Alan Redpath could comment on it. When you, you know, the idea of God singing is just, it's just too much for me. But what I do see here is this. I sing, we sing for all the good reasons that we listed, the six reasons that we talked about and more we could list. I mean, we get into these lists in the Bible. They're never exhaustive, really. You know, we find four things or five things or ten things, but they're just representative of all the many things that we could talk about. And so that this is why I sing and shout to the Lord while I'm singing, while we're singing God says, I'm singing too. And his singing somehow harmonizes with ours to communicate at least three things that he tells us here. It says, God is the mighty one who saves. And what that is reminding me of tonight is that God goes on saving in that he will finish what he started. We believe that salvation uh, is threefold. We are saved at the moment of our conversion. When we come to know Jesus Christ, we're, we're saved. But then that process of sanctification continues as we become more like Jesus, as we cooperate with God and His Word and His Holy Spirit, as we daily are uh, being changed from glory to glory. That's a process of salvation and then we're finally and fully saved or sanctified when we uh, are with the Lord. And so this is one of the things that God says, as you're singing and I'm singing, I am able to communicate to your heart that I will finish what I've started in you. 
Number two, it says he will rejoice over you with gladness. Now, this reminds me that the Lord is not looking upon me to condemn me or to make me feel rotten, but he wants to enjoy his relationship with me Uh, and, and a very the best illustration I can give, and it's, it's not really a great one, but it's like any parent who wants to have fun with their child, who wants to have a nice day. Don't you want to have a nice day today? Let's go do, I've got some things planned, and if you'll just quit throwing the tantrum, if you'll eat your breakfast, if you'll put your clothes on properly, if you'll quit throwing things at me, we'll have a great day. But if you won't, then we're going to have some problems. I, I have to deal with that. And so as, I, as I'm singing, God is singing and he's able to communicate to my heart that he's glad over me. Regardless of my situation, regardless of my circumstances, it is not God condemning me. He, he's not out to make me feel horrible and terrible. I'm not saying we are never convicted of sin or that there aren't issues in our lives that need to be dealt with, but God's thoughts towards us, he's as he's revealed them in the scripture are good and positive to give us an expected end. And then it says he will quiet you with his love. I can be at peace as I surrender to the knowledge that he has loved me with an everlasting love and that all his thoughts toward me really are of peace to give me an expected Reward, And I guess what I'm really all I'm saying tonight is this as is, is it's a night of worship. And one of the ways we express worship is singing. Uh, obviously, you know, worship is a lifestyle and everything that we do is supposed to declare the worth of our Lord. And I understand that. But one of the things we do is sing. And there's nothing wrong with that. In, in fact, there's everything right with that. Whether you like to sing, or you don't like to sing. Uh, we sing. God's people have always sung. And we will continue to sing. And then God here, as far as I know, the only place in the scripture that it describes God is singing. But he says, when you sing, I sing too. And you don't hear it. And there's no actual harmonizing. But something happens, he says, in a spiritual dimension, in a spiritual plane, where these things, and I would guess other things too that he didn't have time to mention, can be communicated to me. And spiritually speaking, there's a language going on. I asked Gene, I got this idea and I asked Gino, I said, hey, is there something I couldn't even describe it? I said, is there something like, you know, when I sing and you sing and then what happens, you know, in this harmony? And he went into this whole thing about overtones uh, that I couldn't understand after that. He mentioned it and then I couldn't understand it. But but actually in the physical realm of singing and, and notes and sound waves, something does happen, you know, and things blend together. And I think God, who's extremely musical uh, and, and wonderful, he says, he says, I want to encourage you to sing because when you sing, I sing. And when we both sing, I can communicate some things to your heart in, in a way that can only happen. Uh, during that time. It doesn't matter if you can sing well or not, but it should encourage you uh, to sing. By the way, what's, uh, this is an interesting aside I came across just in thinking about it and in researching it. Lucifer, who we now know as Satan, the devil, we believe that it can be shown that he was a worship leader in heaven, that he was one who uh, led praise and he, he spoken of as almost a musical being. He is never described as singing in the scripture after his fall. He's never, well, he's actually never described as singing, but uh, we take it that he may have been the worship leader, but he doesn't sing anymore. 
uh, the angels sing, but not the fallen angels and certainly not Lucifer. Interesting. But God sings. And when you sing and God sings, something happens, or at least it can happen. It can produce an atmosphere in which my heart receives certain truths about God and His love for me. And so maybe uh, we would add in our devotional life, uh, maybe you all do this, uh, but you know, as we seek the Lord in His Word, as we seek Him in prayer, let's not forget to sing to Him individually and corporately. Uh, not just to get something, but He says, I'm going to do so. There's some things I can do when you sing. And, and you will leave feeling and sensing something very different than when you came in. It should inspire us to sing. Now, Father, we thank you. It's not about the harmony that we can produce. It's not about whether we understand overtones or harmonies or whether we can sing at all. It's not about whether I'm loud or soft, uh, whether my singing is a whisper or whether it, uh, it fills the room, whether I'm on tune or not. Uh, it's really just the idea that uh, what you've done for me and for us should inspire me to sing and to shout. And as I sing, you say that you sing and, and it produces an atmosphere in which I can receive some things from you that I might not otherwise receive. I might receive them intellectually reading about them, learning about them. But I, I receive them emotionally, as it were, and spiritually as you do something that is precious and wonderful. And so I pray, Lord, as we close out our night of praise, our evening of worship, our ignite of worship, Lord, that we would sing uh, and realize, Lord, that you are singing too and that we would at least know that you are rejoicing and are glad over us and that you are the mighty one to save, the one who will complete what he has begun. Amen.